It's one of the most famous questions in the Bible. It comes from a prison guard who's having such a bad night with earthquakes and broken locks, he's about to take his own life. Looking for a reason to live, he speaks the famous words, What must I do to be saved? And Paul just happens to be there with the answer. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Acts 16 finds Paul and Silas getting thrown into a prison by some angry slave owners. It also finds them in the middle of an earthquake, a jailbreak, a suicide attempt, and the salvation of an entire household. Let's listen now to Dr. Boyce. In our last study of the book of Acts, we saw how God gave the Apostle Paul and his companion Silas a vision of a man in Macedonia who said, come over and help us. They were in Asia at the time, on one side of the Hellespont. Macedonia was on the other. And in the vision Paul received, there was this man. And his words were, come over and help us. Paul received that as a genuine call of God and responded, the party, which by this time, apparently included not only Paul and Silas, who had started out, and Timothy, who had been added along the way, but also Luke, who indicates his presence by using the first-person plural pronoun, we, at this point, they went over, all four of them, into Europe. And so the gospel began that march through Europe, which in time and by the providence of God has brought it home to us. It is interesting that the first conversion that they had in Macedonia, in the town of Philippi, was this woman, Lydia, a Jewess. And now as God continues to bless them in response to the call and their obedience to it, we find that he now has two more people that he wants to bring out of their sin and ignorance to faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior. First of all, there is the story of the slave girl and her deliverance. She's the first of these additional people who is saved. Then there is, in the second place, an attack upon Paul and Silas and the others on behalf of the slave girl's owners because they had lost their source of income. The third section of the story deals with Paul's imprisonment and what happened in the prison how God delivered him and Silas, and how the Philippian jailer was converted in connection with that deliverance. And so that's the third portion of the story. And then there is a sequel that involves the magistrates and the wrapping up of these affairs that concern the church there. Now let's just go through that and look at them one at a time. When we read, as we do from our perspective in history, about someone like this girl who was able to tell fortunes and who earned a great deal for her masters by her fortune-telling, that seems quite remote. But it wasn't at all an unusual thing in antiquity. As a matter of fact, as you read ancient records, you find that this was all very common. When we read of this girl following after Paul and shouting after him, you are one who has come in the name of the Most High God, it's like a replay of what we saw so many times in the lifetime of Jesus Christ. Those who were possessed 
by demons in Christ's day would follow after him, and the demon within them would shout out in recognition of that one who, though they were in rebellion against him, was nevertheless their master. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what was involved here, and that's what was happening. The text actually says she had a spirit of pythona. Now, that also doesn't mean a great deal to us, and for that reason, it's not translated. It merely says she had a spirit. But that word pythona is the word python. It means a snake, a certain kind of snake. And it's used here because it was associated with the great Greek god Apollo. And so this girl who spoke by divination, who told things that were to come, was identified with that particular manifestation of the Greek god. So we would say she had a demonic spirit that was associated with the cult. We're given another clue to how she operated by the word fortune-telling that occurs at the end of verse 16. Apparently, this is the way she got her messages. She would go into a trance, she would begin to behave in an erratic way, and then she would speak, and the demon would speak through her. Now, it's this girl who began to follow Paul and Silas. And as she followed them, she cried out after them. Message is one we find there at the beginning. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. First part of that is not at all surprising. This demon within the woman identified Paul and Silas as servants of the Most High God. And in Isaiah, in the 14th chapter, in the passage that describes the thoughts that went on in the mind of Satan when he rebelled against God and brought sin into the universe. Satan says in that respect, I will be like the Most High God. That's interesting, you see, because when Satan aspired to be like God, it wasn't to be like God in what we would call his most godlike or gracious aspects. He didn't want to be like God in love or in mercy or even in his wisdom. He wanted to be like God, the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. That is Satan wanted to take over the rule of the universe himself. I go into that detail because that particular name for God is most appropriate here on the lips of the woman as this demon who is associated with Satan and his rebellion speaks through her. This is the way God is known to the demons. God the Most High. That's what they want to be. They want to be the Most High. They can't be. The only sovereign God of the universe is the Most High, but that's what they aspire to. So that first address by the slave girl was not at all surprising. And I suppose in a certain sense the second part was not surprising either, though you wouldn't expect this testimony necessarily on the lips of one who is possessed by one of Satan's followers. The girl says, they are telling you the way to be saved. It was a similar thing that happened in the time of Christ. They pointed to Jesus as the Savior. They didn't want to be saved, of course, and it's hard to understand exactly why they identified him this way. Perhaps there was a sort of divine compulsion upon them, but at any rate, the very same thing that we have seen in the life of Christ in a study of the Gospels is what we find here. She said, these men are followers of the Most High God who are telling you the way of salvation. Apparently, as Luke tells the story, there was a time that Paul tried to ignore the interruption. But at last, Paul became troubled by it and turned around and said to the spirit, not to the girl, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And 
the Spirit did. The girl was delivered in that instance, and we are undoubtedly to understand that he began to teach her about Jesus Christ, and she became the second member of the church at Philippi that we know about. Isn't that interesting? church began with two women, Jewish, who were undoubtedly looked down on in part by those of this very Roman community, and the second, a slave girl who had been used by her masters to make money. Well, they were upset by this because now they had lost their source of income. She couldn't tell fortunes anymore. Nobody would pay to have their fortunes told, and so they wouldn't get the money. And they were so upset by it that they went to the authorities, and at this point we have the accusation that they made against Paul. It's important to notice that the accusation that they made before the authorities was not the real thing. What they were really upset about is that their source of income had been taken away. Paul had been damaging to their business. I think we see something like that today. People are quite willing to tolerate Christians and their testimony and their worship as long as it doesn't hurt their business. When you begin to apply biblical principles to the business world, to how money is spent and the kind of things that are done, then the world is up in arms. And at any rate, that's what happened here. But they knew they couldn't get very far with that before the magistrates, so they came with an accusation designed to appeal to as what I've indicated, was a very Roman community. Philippi was a town that had been settled by Roman soldiers, and those within it had Roman citizenship. Not everybody did. So they were very conscious of this Roman citizenship and this loyalty, and it was by appealing to this that the owners of the slave girl hoped to get Paul and Silas condemned. These men are Jews, they said, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept our practice. Well, I said that they were strongly Roman, and of course that is true, but along with it, notice, there was a strong note of anti-Semitism because in the same breath in which they were identifying themselves as Romans, who had certain customs, which alone they were able to follow, they said that these men are Jews, and their purpose as Jews is to disrupt those Roman traditions. It's almost funny to hear them say that, because we know from what's already been told us in the chapter that there weren't very many Jews in Philippi. Usually when Paul went into one of these Greek or Roman cities, he began by going to the synagogue because there he found the godly Jews and the godly Gentiles, known as God-fearers, and it provided a base for him to begin to preach the gospel to the citizens of the city. When he came to Philippi, there wasn't even a synagogue. He had to have ten Jewish men to have a synagogue. And apparently in Philippi, there weren't even ten Jewish men. Moreover, when he went down to the river to find where people were worshiping, it doesn't even mention men. All he found was Jewish women. It wasn't a very big threat to the Roman traditions of Philippi. But you see, when you're in the wrong and you're trying to get after somebody else wrongly, you use almost any scapegoat you can find. And it served the purpose of these people to say, well, these men are Jews, and everybody knows what these Jews are like. They go around stirring things up, and they're here to try and get us to do things that are unlawful for us to do being Romans. Well, that was a lie, of course. Romans could convert to Judaism. There wasn't anything wrong with that. Romans were very tolerant of a variety of 
religions, and there were always God-fearers in the synagogues, but you see, they were playing in the prejudice of the crowd. And they succeeded, humanly speaking. There was an uproar. They stripped Paul and Silas. At this point, Luke does not mention himself or Timothy. Apparently, the two of them were overlooked. But they did strip Paul and Silas. They beat them with rods. This is one of the three times that Paul was beaten with rods. He's going to tell us about it later in the epistles. And then after they had been severely beaten, it was often such a severe beating that some people, weak people especially, would die from it. After they were severely beaten, they were thrown into the prison. And so the second stage of the story ends and the third stage begins. What do you suppose Paul and Silas were doing there in the prison, beaten, locked into stocks in an uncomfortable position? They were like many Christians. They would have been saying, oh, we should never have started out on this missionary task. Things are really hard when you try to bring the gospel into Europe. They would have said, if they were great theologians, I suppose these people are just not among the elect. As soon as we can, we better get out of here and go somewhere else where God is going to bless. Or if they spoke the way many Christians do today, they would say, certainly God wants us to be happy, and we're not happy sitting here in the stocks. We must be out of the will of God. Let's go seek a more fruitful endeavor for our missionary work. Well, they didn't do any of that. You know the story as well as I do. We're told that they're in the prison, beaten, perhaps near death, locked into stocks. They spent the night hours praying and singing praises to God. That's the first sacred concert on the European continent. And if you know the sequence, it was an earthquake. The very stones of the prison were shaken and the chains came loose. I guess you could say it was a rock concert. It was certainly one that was blessed by the Spirit of God. And as Paul and Barnabas sang and praised God, the other prisoners who might have been complaining beforehand began to fall quiet as the believing thief did who was crucified on the cross next to Jesus Christ. And in the quietness, they listened, and they began to learn something about the God who had sent Paul and Silas to that place. We would look at that, and we would say, well, now things are really bad for Paul. And yet it was at Paul's extremity that God seemed to act and make this a great opportunity. When the earthquake came and the chains fell off Paul and the others so that if they had wished they could have rushed out of the prison and escaped, the jailer, who was awakened by the earthquake, came rushing toward the prison thinking that that's exactly what had happened, thinking that all the prisoners had escaped and therefore fearing for his life, think he was rightfully afraid and about to do what under the circumstances and in the code of the Roman military was the proper action. And Paul called out to him and said, We are all here. Do not harm yourself. And it's in that context that we get this great question on the part of this Roman jailer. Sirs, he said, what must I do to be saved? It is 
pertinent, I think, that earlier in the same story, the slave girl, when she pointed to Paul and Silas, used the very same word used here by the Philippian jailer. He said, what must I do to be saved? He uses the verb form, but earlier she said, these men are telling you the way of salvation. It's the noun form, but it's exactly the same word. Did the jailer know the testimony, the prophecy of this woman? I think he probably did. This was the kind of town in which stories like this would rapidly spread. These men had been taken and put in his custody. He must have asked why. The story would have come out. But this slave girl had testified that these men knew the way of salvation and that they had acted powerfully and the demon had been cast out of her. He must have known that. So when he came in these dark hours of the night, trembling, fell down before Saul and Silas in a posture of a suppliant and called out, what must I do? To be saved, I think it's clear in the context of the story that he was speaking of eternal salvation. Notice that the Apostle Paul did not suggest counseling. He didn't say to this Philippian jailer, now I realize you're asking a very important question, what must I do to be saved, but it's important first of all for you to understand yourself so you'll know the terms in which you're asking the question. This is a great Greek principle. Know thyself, and you have to begin with that, and then we'll talk about the gospel. He did nothing of the sort. He didn't lecture in theology. He didn't talk about the sacraments. He didn't say, well, you need to understand now that there's a lot involved here in Christianity, and if you come through this gospel that I'm presenting, there are all these things you have to do. He didn't even talk about the church. Also, Paul answered directly. He recognized that this man was asking a question, a deep question out of the anxiety and anguish of his heart, and he answered it in the simplest terms he knew how. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Where did Paul get that? Where did Paul learn to preach the gospel like that? He was an intelligent man. We've seen other sermons that he preached. Often he quoted from the Old Testament. Where did he learn to make it so simple? Well, I think he probably learned it from his master, Jesus, and if we doubt that, we do have an incident from the days of Jesus Christ in which he himself did the same thing. They came to him on one occasion and they said, good master, what must we do to inherit eternal life? That's a way of saying, what must I do to be saved? It's the same question. And Jesus said, you must believe on him whom God hath sent. And that's what Paul is saying. The emphasis, you see, is on belief. Belief in this context is a contrast to doing. The man said, what must I do? And Paul said, what you must do is not do. What you must do is believe. You've done enough by your doing. You've ruined yourself by your doing. What you have to do is turn from anything you can do and put your trust in Jesus. You say to yourself, did the man understand what that meant? Must have understood something of what it meant. You say, did he understand all of what it meant? No, of course he didn't understand all of it. He hadn't heard much of the gospel. He may have heard a little bit of Paul's preaching. Did he know who Jesus was? He must have understood something, but there was a lot he didn't know. But you see, what he did know, he believed. And Jesus, though he may not have understood fully who he was, was nevertheless great enough, big enough to save him. And so the man believed. And not only was he converted, regenerated in that hour and in the course of that evening, but even his entire family was converted as Paul preached the gospel to them. Now there's a sequel. 
The next morning, we're told, the magistrates came and ordered that Paul and Silas be released. We don't know why, why they changed their minds, but we do know how Paul answered. Paul said, we're not just going to come out of the prison and slip away because they condemned us wrongly. We're Roman citizens, and they have tried us, really, without a public trial, and they have beaten us and imprisoned us, and all of that is illegal for those who bear Roman citizenship. Remember what I said at the beginning. This was a Roman-conscious town. These people were very concerned about observing the laws of Rome and the Roman Empire. And here, unknown to them, but nevertheless, in a culpable way, they had violated those very laws. And they were frightened. Paul said, you tell them not to send us away, but to come and lead us out. And so they did. Why did he do that? I think he had in mind the safety of this infant church that he was soon to leave behind. He wanted to do everything he could to establish it and protect it. And perhaps, I don't know this, but perhaps that's even why he didn't declare when they were about to beat him earlier that he was a Roman citizen then. He did that later in Jerusalem and so was taken into custody and eventually shipped to Rome. It may be that he didn't do that here in order that at the opportune time He might place the magistrates in a position of fear and embarrassment and thus provide a basis for the protection of the church. At any rate, that's what happened. The magistrates requested that they leave the city. Paul didn't insist upon his rights. He obeyed the magistrates. It's what he teaches elsewhere, especially in the book of Romans. But he did require that he have time to go back and visit the church, and so he did. And the story ends by saying that he went back to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. You might think under those circumstances that Lydia and the other Christians would encourage Paul and Silas. They were the ones that had been beaten. But it was the other way around. These were the leaders. They're the ones that God had sent, and they encouraged this little church they left behind. They said, as Paul would say elsewhere, brothers and sisters, we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of heaven. But nevertheless, God is faithful, and I can do all things, you can do all things, through Christ who strengthens you. I notice one interesting thing at this point. Luke decided to stay behind because he had a pastor's heart. Here was a flock, and they needed teaching and help, and he was the person who was there to do it. He may not be a pastor in the sense of being a minister, but you are a pastor, that is, a shepherd under the chief shepherdhood of Christ to those whom God brings into your care, and your job is to minister to them. As you do, you should know that the God who is with you is the same God who is with the apostles, and he's doing the same work, that is, building his church through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the encouragement that a story like this brings. We're thankful for what happened in Philippi. We're thankful for what has happened in other cities of the world. We're thankful for what is happening here day by day as your people in this city bear witness to your grace. Our Father, bless their witness, honor it, and grant that through it many might find Christ as Savior and so be saved from sin and grant that your church might be strengthened. 
for Jesus' sake. Amen. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Riken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.